Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Graham Press. Uh, I am one of the co-founders and organizers of the National Vehicle Residency Collective. I'm an anthropologist uh, who has been working with people who live in vehicles for the past decade, uh, starting uh, originally in Seattle with people who live on uh, city streets, uh, but expanding to uh, people who live uh, in open areas, um, uh, Bureau of Land Management areas, national forests, and uh, other publicly accessible spaces. Fantastic. So just for full context, the typical, the archetype person that's listening to this right now, and we can absolutely dive into the Seattle car camping, all that. But a lot of people listening to this right now are going to be your camper van, RVers, school bus dwellers, or people most more likely, in my honest opinion, are people that are curious about the lifestyle. And right. a lot of the questions, a lot of the inquiries and people that have, actually haven't been on the road is how do you find places to park? Is it safe? Are, are, what, what are the legalities? You know, like, is it, does it count as my domicile? Everybody knows, well, here, watch Breaking Bad when one of the main characters is almost going to get busted. He's like, hey, this RV is my domicile. What, what are you doing? You can't harass me. You know, like right. what, not, not that we have Breaking Bad people out there that are listening to this, but it's like, you know, there's there's so much shrouded in what you see on TV, what you think it actually is versus the reality because you're like more boots on the ground. So my my first yeah. question to you is like, what is the overarching view that society has versus what you see day to day? Like what what is the reality of the differences? That's a great question. Uh, and actually, it's, it's really kind of become the focus of, of my research over the past decade is that um, the way that, that society tends to view vehicle residency, which is sort of the way I, I you know, the term that we use on the whole to so general just living in a vehicle as your full time residence is sort of in two sort of extremes that are very different. Uh, one side of it is either as temporary vacationing that is often often uh, indicates affluence and maybe someone who's not working or, you know, ge generally just traveling. Uh, the second, the other side, which is very opposite, is um, uh, uh, abject homelessness, right? It's extreme poverty. It's seen as like, you know, the van down by the river and all the stereotypes that we know that go along with that. And the last resort. Seen, and I'm sure uh, you have experienced and may resonate with many of your listeners, uh, is that the, what's missing in between that is the vehicle as affordable housing. And that so many people are using their vehicles as long-term housing as a way to meet their personal needs, either while they're working remotely or to uh, have a better uh, connection with their natural world, while they're, while they're engaged in outdoor activities um, or remote or seasonal work as they travel across the country. And so that's really where a lot of my work and a lot of the work that we do with the National Vehicle Residency Collective focuses on is how to um, advocate for and protect the civil rights and property rights of people who live in their vehicles as housing. So simply put, <clears throat> what is the baseline when somebody is living, let's let's just use a Honda Element. Somebody is living out of their Honda Element and we'll we'll start there and move our way up. What are the actual legal realities of that person per person living in their Honda Element? Well, it, it generally depends upon the municipality and at the state level in some places. Um, in most most point places in the United States, it's not illegal to live in your vehicle, uh, whether that's a Honda Element or an RV or school bus. So um, it, in general, it is not illegal. Now, that definitely is not all over the place. In fact, um, some states recently, such as uh, Tennessee, uh, have passed laws that make it actually illegal, even a felony, uh, to 
to sleep outdoors. And that may mean in your vehicle in a public space that would be considered outdoors. So whether that's a Honda Element or any larger size vehicle, it would it would apply. Um, in places like San Diego, it's the same thing. Actually, if you if you're sleeping in your vehicle in any type, that could be legally problematic. And you could actually, even in San Diego, you could actually be taken into custody uh, under their vehicle habitation ordinance. Uh, again, regardless of vehicle size. Um, so, so this is where there's a lot of overlap there. Now, the difference is, of course, of living in a Honda Element versus a school bus or a box truck. You know, the size is is really a lot of that, right? So that's and that could be a good, you know, could be there's benefits and sort of uh, uh, detractors for that, right? Uh, challenges that come from that, um, as I'm sure you know, right? That the the size can obviously make for a, a more comfortable living experience indoors. You have more space for your property, more place to store things, uh, more place to do work. Um, but of course, the challenge is, is that for people who are living in cities, uh, you know, that they can't, you know, they can't work on the vehicle outside of it. It can be easier because it's easier to park the vehicle because it's smaller, of course. Um, and there are less legal restrictions typically on smaller vehicles. In most cities uh, in the United States, vehicles that are considered oversized, uh, which would be 80 inches wide or over like 10 feet long. It sort of depends upon the municipality, what they define as oversized. But a van, a large truck, a school bus, an RV, all of these would be counted as oversized. Uh, many cities require oversized vehicles to park in industrial zones overnight. And so that would be a significant difference, right? If you're living in a Honda Element, you wouldn't be required necessarily to park in that industrial zone overnight. Yeah, so let's let's back up a little bit. I want to unpack why Tennessee and San Diego have decided to criminalize this, and what is the reasoning? What what's the actual boots on the ground from what you're seeing? Probably going to the city council meetings, talking to residents, like really studying it. Why are they doing it? What is the the angels on the the angel and the devil on the shoulder? Let's let's let's, let's still man both sides, right? Let's let's not you know just be like they're right they're wrong let's hear both arguments for those and we'll just use those two as examples i feel like that's a that's a good starting point because we have middle of the country heartland then you have the beach vibes right you have both so let's start with tennessee what is the pro or the good good angel bad devil what's going on there that's a it's a great way to put it actually and thinking about it in that kind of sense it's a binary right what's the good and the evil when often there's a lot of in between right but that's a great let's, let's look at it through that frame because i think that it's similar for both san diego and tennessee what we'll see so that um the 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 good angel right is that uh that uh that uh, people who are living uh, in an RV or school bus theoretically have enough money to afford a campground, uh, to be able to, to afford a private parking space. So the idea being that if you are sleeping in public space, you're doing so against sort of the general society good, and that if you can afford to be in your vehicle, because it is seen as this affluent vacationing, then you should be parked in a private space, like a campground or an RV park or something like that. So the rule that says you need, you cannot be in public space would be to enforce that. Now, on the other side, the negative side is that they're saying, okay, but if you can't afford to be in that, well, then that would be homelessness, right? And if you, if you're theoretically, again, this is the the bad angel, right? The devil on the, on the shoulder would be saying that this person is um, is poor and uh, is unable to afford a private place to be so that they should not be in public space. And then that law is then to actually make it illegal for them to be in public space. 
this is again okay. where like i was talking about before that sort of binary between seeing it as either affluence or poverty misses what's in between which is it as housing and so for the many people who are living in that vehicle as housing they're still kicked out of tennessee and can't park in the public space even if it is you know in between they can't they you know they don't want to pay for the camp spot right but at the same time you know they're not uh you know it is their their form of housing that they prefer yeah so that that makes complete sense because I think it is important to define that what we are speaking about a lot in this conversation, because the line gets blurred because we will obviously get into BLM public land, public space there versus public space in a city. And what we are talking about right now is public space. Like obviously in Tennessee, they can't, they're not going to make it illegal to go to an RV park and camp. This is, you know, right. parking right. your vehicle at the local Walmart or, um, you know, the, the pull over on the side of the gas station and put some towels up, like, right. you know, like the, the, the whole the whole spectrum. Right. right? So we're actually, talking about public camping, right? Very specifically. Yeah, very specifically, it's about parking in either public parking. Uh, it might be a, a public space. It might also be a, a, um, a rest stop. Um, or a, uh, you know, uh, pulled over in a park, something like that. A Walmart or a gas station, actually, that is private space. And so those places can already be enforced, right? The private property owner can already say, hey, call a tow co- company and have people tow, right? That's, this is actually that, that uh, the state, the state of Tennessee has made it so that they can actually, they have a law that is moving through their systems that will make it so that you actually i'm sorry no it it went through and began enforcement this year that makes it so that it's a felony to live to uh sleep outdoors in public spaces gotcha understood uh, that that makes that makes sense thanks for clarifying so california good devil or good good angel bad devil what are the what are the arguments there you know and this is where it's very much the same right so san diego is a perfect example of this it's um, that it's it's on both sides, right? It's that uh, people who are um, property owners who have very valuable, beautiful views of the ocean uh, complain about RVs that are parked in front of their properties, obstructing their views. Uh, people who uh, visit the beaches, you know, and uh, and and uh, live in these areas or have businesses in these areas uh, complain about um, impromptu, you know, KOAs basically on their on their public streets and 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 again it's the way that it's seen is either these are vacationers who can afford to be in a private space and then they should be there or this is homelessness and people don't want to see that homelessness on their streets so it's being removed from that street and again this is where the response of it's actually for many people this is just housing Right. And they may be moving that housing all over the country. They may they may be actually just displaced from the community of San Diego, you know, relying upon that vehicle as their primary housing to continue working, to continue keeping their kids in a local school. But in either sense, missing that it's housing, they're not creating the space for that vehicle as housing. Instead, they just they there's a punitive response, which is just to say, really, get out. Right. Or actually, in literally in San Diego, you can actually brought, be taken into custody uh, for uh, evidence of sleeping in your vehicle. Yeah. So it's, it's more of just um, <clears throat> making it enforceable to where they can, quote, get rid of the problem. So um, I'm going to follow it up with a question. Have you been to Tennessee and experienced people that have dealt with this law or is that more of a San Diego thing for you personally? 
So I, I have not been to Tennessee uh, since this law. I haven't been there since I was a child, to be honest. So I haven't been to Tennessee in quite some time. Um, but as as the um, uh, organizer, or one of the organizers for the National Vehicle Residency Collective, we have many attendees, uh, members. Um, actually, many of our members are members also of the Home on Wheels Alliance. So we have a lot of overlap and people who travel through Tennessee and have brought this up as, as something that they have seen and are very concerned about um, as they move through that state. Um, now, so for the, San Diego, I have seen that on the ground there. Uh, and uh, actually, I I've, um, uh, have uh, am one of the expert witnesses on a class action suit uh, against the city of San Diego around the vehicle habitation ordinance and the oversized vehicle ordinance. Okay, so real quick with, with the Tennessee example, the people part of the, the organizations that you're a part of, do they have any stories like firsthand experience like somebody that has experienced this and how it went to the legal system if if not no pressure on that because i and i don't know how much you can disclose about the san diego side of things or if it's not actually an active case or just a story because I, I just want the audience to have a little bit more because right now we're talking in theoreticals right i'm very curious how this actually translates to real people and I, I guess it doesn't have to be Tennessee or San Diego. It could be another example. But do, do you have any examples of how this actually plays out? Absolutely. Focuses in a bit. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the Sandy. So first off, the Tennessee um, ordinance is relatively new, right? If I, if, if my recollection is correct, it began enforcement in this January. So it's only four months in. I haven't seen any um cases yet of vehicle residents who have been uh, to actually received a felony um so but this is you know this is a concern so i i personally have not heard uh any on the ground reports of people being being um, ticketed for this yet but you know it's kind of wait and see and of course we don't want to see that happen to be honest um now the san diego case um i could i, I uh interviewed people uh in san diego um spent time in San Diego. I have my, my vehicle is built out. So I sleep in my vehicle when I do my research. And I also slept on the streets of San Diego to sort of see sort of what people were experiencing there as well, very briefly. Um, and uh, one of the things, uh, uh, the, there are, uh, for anyone who has been to San Diego, this will come as no surprise. Uh, there are signs throughout the city that are very explicitly targeting vehicle residency. Uh, that very much say vehicles that are used for habitation are not allowed. Um, and whether or not people receive, there's been actually a moratorium on um, this law. This or, These two ordinances went in um, about seven years ago, if I remember right. This is a long, long case that's been going. Uh, and there was a moratorium on, or a, um, um, a, 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 a pausing of the um, uh, enforcement of the law during the course of this case. So they stopped actually enforcing it, but they continued to put up signs that said that this law was enforced, right? So the threat of the law, the fact that these signs are around that says, if you sleep in your vehicle, you can be arrested and taken into custody is enough to cause many people to not actually see that they can park in a, a space. So that right there constrains their livable space. Um, and then of course, there's been people who actually have been ticketed uh, have had uh, all of their their possessions taken uh, during an impound. Uh, people who have been, um, I, the biggest fear is that a person is, and I think it actually did happen to one person. I can't speak too much on the specifics of the case, but uh, but that uh, it has, I believe, it's, a person has been taken into custody 
uh, their vehicle was impounded, which meant that they essentially lost all of their goods, uh, all of their possessions, uh, because of simply sleeping in their vehicle. And and that is, um, I think, a fear that many people who live in their vehicles would uh, would justifiably have. Right? We would not want that to happen. Um, now, what I have seen, I worked in in Seattle for a decade. Uh, as an outreach worker for two years uh, to about 1,500 people living in vehicles. Um, and I worked uh, uh, to uh, advise people about upcoming law enforcement, about ticketing, about impounds, uh, to help people to warn people and help them to avoid these things. Uh, I saw it happen many, many times over. Uh, and the, the, the real effect of this is that um, people have their homes impounded. Uh, when the home, the, especially a large vehicle, is impounded, it often the tow truck destroys the vehicle because it, you know, drags on the back when it gets towed in. It's extremely expensive to tow the vehicle. Uh, the vehicle is then uh, impounded uh, and held in storage at a very expensive rate. It's uh, if you've ever had your vehicle impounded, you know the storage on them is actually jacked up really high. Uh, and what happens is, is that within a couple days, the, the the fees on that are so extreme that the person can't even get the vehicle out of impound and they essentially lose everything. Uh, we did a study in Seattle where we actually pulled the tickets that were issued to people living in vehicles. We did a Freedom of Information Act request and looked at two years of vehicle of tickets that were, were issued uh, to, and published an article in the Department of Housing and Urban Development uh, showing this research uh, and showed about how, how first off, how, how rarely they were actually paid back. Right to show that the cost on the taxpayers was extreme. Right that there was this that the policing cost, and yet there was very little actually free compensation for that that actual ticket. Uh, and then also what it actually did to the person who lived in the vehicle. We showed one individual, a man who um, uh, had his RV ticketed uh, fifteen times, I think it was in one year, uh, and was basically forced to move from area to area throughout Seattle until eventually his vehicle was impounded. Uh, and then sold at auction to another person for ten dollars, uh, and this is uh, you know is is as a is a very revolving door practice that's common in a lot of communities. So this is sort of like that's sort of the worst case scenario. In fact, it, it could even be much worse than that. I think the worst case scenario is the person's actually arrested, serves time, actually gets a criminal record, and loses all their possessions, and and that's what's happening. That's what we're trying to fight. So, I guess if if we're playing it even here, like I'm. I'm I'm curious because I, I know people within the audience or where my head goes, if somebody's getting a ticket 15 times, like, and of course he's probably stuck in a situation where I don't know if it's work. I don't know what it is, but why, why do people stick around cities that are hostile towards them? Because, you know, I guess it's, and I, it's probably entitled for me to say, I'm just thinking like going out to public land, but I guess they don't have the opportunity to have this magic little box called a laptop and work and money and all that or resources. Like why it, it sounds like there, there's a, there's a push away, but people are holding on. Why is mm -hmm. that? Oh, that great question. It, it's, I, uh, this is, you know, that's what I, I've learned from people living in vehicles and particularly from uh, working with people in the cities and then working with people who are more remote and, and are in more uh, rural areas and co coming to gatherings like Schooly Palooza and the Rubber Trap Rendezvous and meeting um, people who are full time on the road uh, is that that people who are living in cities tend to be um, from an anthropological perspective. We, you know, in looking at nomadism, which has been studied for a long time, we would call this uh, they're, they're geographically tethered. They're connected 
to a physical community. They tend to be uh, displaced from that community. They often were lost housing and moved into a vehicle as a way to maintain a connection to that community. They might be relying on medical services, mental health services, veteran services uh, in that community. Uh, often their family and friends are there. Their children might be going to school there. Uh, for all these reasons, and of course, they may work there, of course, in many cases, uh, that for all these reasons, people are are tethered to this community and don't leave it. Uh, we did a study in Oakland a couple of years ago uh, with people living in RVs uh, on public streets and all across Oakland, we interviewed people. Um, you know, right outside the Home Depot, right? And there, and, you know, in, in various, not just the Home Depot, but these sorts of areas that we're, I'm sure we're familiar with if we've driven by Home Depots in large cities and 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 asked why people were there. And then what we saw was that they tended to be displaced from that city or the county. They tended to have incomes that were too low to afford local housing, but were too high to receive housing assistance or social services if they even wanted them. And they tended to see themselves as really not having another option that like they needed to, as far as they saw it, they needed to be in this food and work and everything. And they didn't even know about the option of places like Bureau of Land Management areas. They don't even know that long term visitor areas existed like these sorts of these sorts of concepts just aren't even like in their you know perception of reality because it's just not anything they've ever heard of. Um, and so this is actually one of the things that really inspired me in this work when I met people out in the deserts of why aren't we cross-pollinating this, right? That what if people knew about these other forms of space, right? That I think that for so many people who are living in the cities, it's often that they don't know that there's another possibility. When I ended up going to the Rubber Trap Rendezvous and meeting people who were uh, uh, out, well, even before that, but when I was meeting people in more rural spaces um, and meeting people out in the deserts, living in Bureau of Land Management areas, Many of them had been from the cities until they learned that these spaces existed and then they came out to the Bureau of Land Management area. So I think that a lot of it's it's the knowledge and, and the um, and, you know, I think you're right when you say there's a bit of a, a privilege, right, of being able to afford gas, afford the travel, of have a vehicle that can make it to Arizona from San Diego. Right. You know, and, and I think that's part of the challenge, too, is that. For people who are displaced into their vehicles because of eviction or gentrification, generally poverty in general, um, they're often buying a vehicle that's that's older and it may not be able to make that trip, right? So, like, mm -hmm. this is why that RV is getting ticketed 15 times in a year is that the, v, the v, RV is not really able to drive very far. So staying in one parking space for more than 72 hours and that's the ticket it's getting it's getting a more than 72 hour ticket and they're very very minor offenses but clearly they they add up and they disproportionately affect uh, people who can't pay those tickets so out of the people that you and i know we're kind of harping on cities here i guess i'm i'm just really curious because not many people have the hands-on experience with people living in this situation um how many of the people that you encounter are working within the city? Because it sounds like it's not necessarily that they're just hanging out all day. Like they're they're actually developing some sort of income, or at least they're attempting to. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of that? Yeah, though, and that's um, a great again a great question. Uh, it's uh, it's hard to give it a number because there's there's so little research on this there there's only a few people who've really been doing these interviews started to collect this information and uh questions like what is your there's an assumption that people who live on the streets don't have jobs right and 
this is one of the things that we've found of talking to people in vehicles. Many do have jobs and they're not even being asked the question, do you have work? Right. So that question really, there's there's not good data, unfortunately. What I've seen is that, um, you know, maybe half up to three quarters of the people that I'm meeting who are living in vehicles have some form of active income. And I'm not talking about just like subsidized income oh, about uh, what we found actually in our study was about, I think it was 80% of the people that we interviewed actually had income. Uh, now, a lot of that, you know, there's about maybe 20% uh, or so of that population that were that we interviewed that was um, subsidized, right? So that would be um, unemployment or um, social security, disability, something like that. Um, again, very low. It's about you know seven hundred dollars a month, right? Is what they're receiving. So nowhere near enough to survive, but it's income. Uh, but then there were um, you know about you know half or so of the people that we talked with who uh, you know were working as security guards, who were um, working in gig economies, who were working in fast food, who were uh, working in, in um, uh, 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 home care and all these, uh, a lot of uh, low income jobs uh, and particularly a lot of um, temporary contract jobs that weren't enough to pay to live in the communities where they worked, but the community where they worked is where they found their employment, right? And so this was part of the problem too, is that they were actually using that vehicle as a way to live near where they worked, particularly in the in California, right? And because the it's just the housing prices are so extreme that um, the, really the only places they could afford to live were so far from where they could work that this was the only way they could actually, you know, make that work. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I guess when it comes down again, keeping the audience in mind from a nomad that's living in a school bus, say you met them at Schoolypalooza versus the person that's currently living in San Diego trying to make it work and don't realize what schoolie Palooza is and public land and doesn't know that Aaron Berg's down the road, right? Um, what is the delta between the two? What is the, like, are there any major mis misconceptions on two parties or is it they're more similar than, than they think, or is the delta pretty large? Like you, since you've stepped foot into both worlds, cause it is just like, it's the same thing, but it is absolutely a different side of the coin. 100% different side of the coin. So what what are the misconceptions? What's the delta between the two two people? Yeah. Um uh, so I think that uh, there's there are so there are many more similarities when we actually talk to people and we find if we go to, you know if you go to school in Palooza and you ask where people are from you're going to find a good portion of people who actually do live in San Diego or live in Los Angeles and come out there for that. So I think there's actually a lot of um, a lot more similarity than we, than we might think. Uh, and that the, the differences really is uh, between the spaces that people occupy. Uh, and that's really where the conditions are, that the, the um, uh, and, and then that goes into sort of the, the resources that people have to be able to get to those spaces and continue to be in those spaces. Uh, once, um, you know, for people who are digital nomads uh, or live in van life and are able to move around between BLM areas, uh, national forests, uh, the the low cost of that, uh, and uh, along with being able to work while they're doing it, can can obviously make for a very rewarding, um, very successful, and, and and productive lifestyle. Uh, and and I think that a lot of people who um, 
when we talk about like sort of like the delta, it's figuring that out. It's actually learning it. It's sort of like you know if you, if I'm sure you've seen uh, Bob Wells' videos or and him talking about sort of um, uh, educating people about the opportunities of vehicle residency, right? That it's and I think that that's really where the change comes is that when people start learning that um, that they that you have every right to have pride in your housing. You have every right to respect and be respected for your private property, right? And that, and that, you know, that 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 this lifestyle is a very productive thing. It doesn't have to be something that needs to be seen as stigmatized. Uh, but in the cities, the problem is, is that it tends to be seen as stigmatized, right? And so this is, I think that's that's if really the difference between these um, in terms of sort of the perspective is that many people who are living in the cities are constantly hit with this stigma, this idea that, well, you're homeless, you have to be homeless because you're living on this public street. And the moment that people are getting out into an area like the BLM lands, they're with other people who are able to say, I love your home, let me see your home. And that whole sort of stigma of homelessness is able to dissipate, you know, and it's and it's because of the respect of that property and how it's sort of seen differently um, in the different types of spaces that it's inhabited, whether that's public parking or more open area like uh, BLM areas. Okay, so let, let's humanize this again. And again, just, just pulling this out, I don't know if you have this example. You said you've been to Scalipalooza, RTR. Um, can you give a firsthand experience of someone that was in San Diego or somewhere in California or let's say Nevada or it doesn't have to be California. I don't want to pick on California because it's Sometimes Very it's easy, easy to pick, pick on. <laughs> I, I was going to say, it's it's easy to pick on California. But um, somebody that was forced into a vehicle that then you talk to them at Schooly Palooza or RTR, and just like you explained, they went through that metamorphosis to stigmatize to then being on the road. Do you have an example? And it doesn't have to be rainbows and unicorns. Like It doesn't have to be this happy Disney story. I'm just curious of like a real-life example of how this has come about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I, and I've seen it so many times. Uh, uh, I, I've heard people and seen them sort of go through this sort of realization that I that I went through myself. Um, I won't talk about mine. I'll talk about somebody else's. That I um, recently at the last RTR I was at, uh, there was a woman who uh, was there from actually from San Diego, uh, and she was living in her um, in her uh, RV in on the streets of San Diego. She was. Uh, displaced from uh, her housing into the RV. So, you know, she chose to move into the RV, but it was from a limited set of options that included being evicted, right? And, and not, not having another place to live. So we might say that she was forced into it. It's kind of a matter of sort of semantics and how she sees it herself. Uh, but but so she, she moved into that RV, was living on the streets. Uh, she said that, you know, the community around her, because they knew her, because she had lived in this area for years, uh, before living in the RV was very supportive, but that, uh, you know, the police didn't know that. And the police had been targeting her RV. She'd been getting a lot of tickets. She was afraid about these laws that she had heard about, these vehicle habitation ordinance, the oversized vehicle ordinance, which would affect her RV. Um, and, and, uh, and and so she she was experiencing this stigmatization. She, you know, was saying, I'm not homeless. And yet everybody around me keeps calling me homeless and treating me like I'm homeless. I don't want to use the homeless services because that's not me. But like all they want to do is kind of pigeonhole me into that. And and then she's at the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous and I, where I'm, I'm talking with this woman. Uh, she's an African-American woman. Uh, and uh, not that it necessarily matters, but to give a little context of, of, of who she is, uh, older woman. Uh, and and she's saying that she, you know, that that 
out here, she's with people who are saying, you know, that that they respect their homes and people she's able to invite people into her home and she's able to call it her home. And that and even just that simple, that that very simple shift of being able to being um, have pride and respect for her home. It sort of changed everything. Right. That she had she was had talked about how she felt um almost trapped inside of her rv when she was parked in san diego because she had to sort of keep everyone else out and there was this fear and this discrimination and she ever never really knew when the ticket was going to come or someone's going to come harass her or what might happen but the moment that she was out with a community of people who saw the vehicle actually as valuable right and saw it as something that was a form of housing that a lot of that went away and that that pride and that respect was sort of restored in her Right, that she was able to uh, value what was her home as home. Yeah, it's consistent state of fight or flight. It seems, right. and like if um, and that 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 is an interesting situation. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, you know, I've been doing the vehicle thing for a while. I've never necessarily, I've never signed a lease, and this is just my personal experience. You know. So when it comes down to living in vehicles, that's all that I've really known. I would rent a place for maybe six months, but it's always short term. Like that's the longest that I've ever rented a place, right? Where right now, for those watching the video, I'm currently in a cargo trailer here down in the Keys. Parking is very limited, but we got to set up here. And it got to a point two days ago to where it was like questionable if we're going to be able to stay here because it's like not kosher with the authorities, right? To where I immediately in my head is like, screw it. Like, we'll, we'll pack up and go right now. And just having that, it wasn't fight or flight, but just that uncomfortable feeling consistently not knowing. For me doing this for like 12, 13 years, I'm like, fine, whatever. Like, I don't want to be anywhere where I'm not not welcome. But that that's on top of somebody that's been doing it for 13 years. That's a 200-pound male, right? Versus somebody that... Right has lived in a certain spot and all of a sudden they have this pressure, you know, you have the stigma on top of the pressure and that's their only option. Like, again, I feel right. like I absolutely am privileged to be able to hop in a rig, fill it up with gas and it doesn't bother me where not everybody's in that situation. Like they're obviously constrained from the get and that's why they're in that situation. And yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is a completely different setup when you're consistently feeling like it's almost like you're, you're hunted. Like it, it's just this uneasy feeling that goes in your stomach. People that are, that have currently been in rigs that ever been in that spot, know exactly what I'm talking about. People that are just listening to it. You don't know it until you feel it. Like it, it's yeah. definitely something that's, it's a very odd, uncomfortable feeling. It is. It is. It's a, that, that feeling of othering, right. That you're sort of like feeling unwanted that it's like, and you're like, I'm just like anyone else here. I don't understand why you're looking at me this way. Right. But it's like this, you know, this, um, uh, and, and that was what I think is so, um, valuable about the nomadic community, uh, was that this woman, when she was able to be there and connect with people in courtsite and see that so many other people were living just like her in ways that were very valuable and very productive and very happy. Right. They were healthy and they were loving life. She she continued to connect with that. She connected deeper and she wanted and, she, and I, I don't even know if she went back to San Diego. I think she might have stayed in courtside at least for a while longer to, to because for her, that was it was like she found her group, you know, and, and I think that that's one of the things that that is um, 
valuable about that we can cross-pollinate, that we can take back from people who have discovered this privilege of being able to be on the road, right? Of, of what it means and the sort of the new potentials and the value of being able to pick up stakes and move to the next spot, of being able to trust our gut, right? When if you're in the city and she can't because that's the only neighborhood she knows, suddenly she has a new potential in her, in her perception that's able to change the whole world for her. And that and that's beautiful. That's amazing. You know, I I think that's what what we can. I think that's the real value of this work. Yeah, and it's it's really hard because again, I'm I'm not in that position, so I don't want to overstep. But it is, and again, it it is having just the options to do certain things that I need to be be mindful of. But I I just go just goes back to that push and pull to some some city wanting you out. To where in my mind it's just and I and again I don't know if it's been on the road so long but it's just like fine bet like I'm gonna do whatever it is but in in the same token another side of of my mind goes to like for example my school bus had a drive shaft snap going down the interstate that was very 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 expensive and I work a ton I work an absolute ton and that drained my bank account and that 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 was one instant. And, you know, like if, if that gets towed, goes to the storage yard, starts racking up every day and storage fees, like I do understand the slippery slope that these people are in. So, you know, when it when it comes down to the amount of people that you have heard of that that they're they're on the road into their, their last resort that have that breakdown, that have that major issue what what do they do what what is the recourse do they just scrap their rig do you know like again personalizing do you have any personal stories experience with this and how do they rebound how do they like what what is that what is that process what is that what does that look like well of course it's 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 different for every person right i mean and but but i think that uh i definitely have have many stories of that uh have heard and experienced it myself and seen it many times um uh the home on wheels alliance i just to put a put a word out for them does a lot of great work they actually have a um I think it's called like the nomads fund right where they have a, a fund for people who break down on the road to help them to get their vehicles back and running uh, exactly for these situations because it is so common um and you know that's why their first rule their first advice is make a savings fund for your breakdown right because it's going to happen um, uh, it, it just is. And, and, you know, going back to the story of the woman that I shared about in San Diego or the man who was in the RV, who got ticketed over and over these, the RV is, you know, is from the seventies, right. That, that, that they purchased because they can't afford a $150,000, $400,000 new RV, right. They're buying one that's $5,000 or a thousand dollars, right. And it's from 1978. So the fact is it's going to break down if it hasn't already and barely, it might barely run. So the costs of, of, that vehicle maintenance and the potential of that happening when you're on the road is um, can be extreme. Um, so, you know, on one hand, a lot of people learn how to do maintenance on the vehicle. That's kind of one of the things you kind of have to. Um, a lot of people don't know how to, um, and they may be stuck having to give up the vehicle and buying a cheaper vehicle. They might sell the vehicle, as we've seen a lot. Um, one of the things I think that sort of, it's interesting, but uh, what, what sort of defines a nomad is not so much the movement, but the potential to change, the, the, the ability to respond to these environmental changes very quickly, 
So, so what sort of defines, you know, a, a nomad is this environmental reflexivity, this ability to re respond to environmental changes and having a vehicle break down while you're moving around your home, your shelter break down uh, is common uh, and being and having to like shift to a new form. I mean, I've known people who, you know, go out on the road, come back a year later and there are seven vehicles different, right? By the time they come back because they break down, you get a new one, you get it, you know, and they just sort of like, you know, kind of limp them along until they get home. Um, you know, so I don't know if that answers your question. I think there's so much variety there and how many people can, how people can respond. Well, I'll be very specific. Let's, let's say, and I'm, I'm going to do a series of fast fast scenarios because I'm, I'm curious your thoughts the the first one is someone that last resort vehicle they have a thousand dollars in their bank account and that is precious precious to them to a major degree their rig breaks down on the side of the road and no credit cards thousand dollars cash in a bank account they have a little money coming in each month but the repair is three thousand dollars to get it movable and that's without tow fee. That's it. like, what do people do? And like, do, do they literally just like they take out what they can and then the tow truck takes the rig and they're just on the streets? Is that literally what happens? Uh, yes, it does. In many cases, uh, people have to get I mean, if they're lucky, they get out what they can before the tow truck takes it, because if they, everything they own is inside that vehicle, where else do they put it? Right. If they lose their vehicle, that's one of the challenges. Right. How much can you actually recover from a vehicle that's going to be taken if it's sort of your, holds, holds all your property? Um, so, yes, they do that. Uh, sometimes they'll bring it to a, a mechanic and find a, a, you know, a, a friendly mechanic who might do the work for, on the cheap. Uh, maybe they can uh, bring it to a mechanic and leave it there for a month while they wait for their next payment to come in and live in the vehicle in a parking lot. Sometimes people are friendly about that. If they're out um, out of the cities, they might be able to stay in, you know, like a BLM area uh, while they're waiting to sort of that next month of payment to be able to cover costs of, of, of repairs. Um, but one of the big challenges, of course, is that uh, with the, well, even with BLM areas, you, you really can't do, you know, maintenance or repairs yourself. A lot of those maintenance or repairs in public spaces, you're really not allowed to, you know, change your oil or drop your, tra your transmission or something, you know, on a public parking. Um, and you really shouldn't in BLM areas, even though people might. Uh, and um, so, so, I mean, yes, that's exactly what people do is that they sort of um, make do and try to try to keep hold of their home. And if not, if they have to, you know, sell it and get a cheaper one and, and try to move everything into that. Okay. So scenario number two, um, somebody's driving, they have a 2000 school bus. It's painted. It's not yellow. Um, they're parked on the let's let's say a city street in an industrial area. There's really no signs. There's trucks and everything. But a cop comes up and is asking them if the cop can come in. And I know it depends on city to city, state to state. But is there a blanket cross country uh, law to where? And again, we're, we're just throwing it out there. The school bus is their home. Does the cop have to get a warrant or is it literally to the point of state by state, principality by principality? It's just going to depend. Yeah. So uh, um, the answer is that uh, it generally is state by state, municipality to municipality. But uh, unfortunately, the law errs at the like sort of national level on the side of the police officer being able to go in without a warrant. 
uh, because the vehicle, whether or not it is a home or not, is uh, because it is mobile. There is an assumption that a uh, person who might be perpetrating a crime could leave a jurisdiction before an investigation is able to be finished. Right. And that may. And so for that reason, like if you were pulled over and they thought you had drugs in your car, they can search your car without a warrant because you could just leave their jurisdiction before they get that warrant. That's how it works in any kind of vehicle, unfortunately. And there have been some cases around that that ultimately did reinforce that ruling. So uh, there has been pushback, uh, particularly back in the 90s. There were some cases around this. Um, but uh, but as it stands now. In most places, uh, they would have the police officer um, would have a case. You might be able to fight it, right? But they would have a case for being able to go into your vehicle and search it without a warrant. Unfortunately, now now there are states like Washington where uh, the Homestead Act in Washington says that a vehicle. A, I'm sorry, that a a primary residence, a home cannot be sold to pay for an outstanding fine or fee. And there was some recent casework in Seattle, in Washington, uh, what's called the Seattle versus Long decision, uh, where a man had his vehicle, a, a, a truck uh, that was impounded with all of his tools in it. And he uh, um, uh, uh, lost everything. And the, uh, the, the Supreme Court found that uh, because his truck was sold to pay for that impounded storage, which is really common, that essentially violated the Homestead Act. So in the state of Washington, if you can actually say that your vehicle is your home, it can be protected against impound and, and tow, right? Or tow and impound. So it's an interesting, there's some, you know, it does depend on state to state, but um, for the most part, uh, uh, a vehicle residence is governed as a vehicle uh, under sort of search and seizure laws. So another, another archetype here, a young couple living in a camper van both have a computer job they they're not necessarily killing it but they're they're like making a decent living how much are you actually seeing that versus people that are forced into it and i know you have a wide spectrum is it is it literally to the point to where you have this one camp no pun intended over here and you have this other camp over here and there's no no middle ground is it two separate people in in general or are you seeing a little bit of a mix like how many people are you seeing that are working from the laptop or working seasonal jobs they're working at the laundromat down the road that's also a kayak rental spot so they park their vehicle they're like through digital nomads versus those forced into it what are the spectrums are they completely separate people what are you seeing with that that's a great. Uh, another great question. Um, so this is where uh, when, you know, I, I talked before about people living in via, uh, in the cities that we see that as as people who are geographically tethered, people who are connected to a very specific uh, ge geography, a uh, physical space. Um, people who are who, uh, I've met to answer your question specifically, uh, probably about. Well, as I'm as I've gone more into the rural areas, out of the cities, and that number is increasing about people who I'm meeting who are on the roads. Uh, probably, I mean, at this point, probably about half of the people who I'm working with are outside of the cities, um, mainly. And also, honestly, it's because I continue to work within 
homeless quote unquote services sectors in the cities because that's where a lot of my background is uh, that keeps me connected to people who are in the cities. Otherwise, most of my work nowadays is actually out with people who are at the Home on Wheels Alliance or School of Palooza or Descend on Band or any of these larger sort of um, gatherings. Um, and, and most of those people at those events, I shouldn't say most, a good portion of the people at those events are digital nomads. Uh, they're exactly the, the person that you're describing. And um, I've done interviews with them. I'm writing a book actually right now in which a chapter is features a couple that's very much matches the description you just gave. Um, they make $150,000 a year. Uh, they, uh, you know, have good jobs. They uh, are living their American dream. Uh, they're have a property ownership. They're saving up for future property ownership and uh, life is great. Um, and so I think that for that group of people, uh, we might say that they are geographically untethered or geographically semi-tethered. And that uh, that there's sort of the difference being that, um, uh, and this so this is where I would say that there's actually vehicle residents as a whole sort of fall into these three different categories of behavior. I wouldn't say that that there's a separation because there's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of overlap among these groups, among sort of this the the use of space. But that that you the the category of behavior really has to do with how long a person spends within a particular area. So like within a hundred mile radius, if a person spends say three months out of the year within a hundred mile radius, we might consider them to be semi-tethered, right? Because they're using that other nine months to move around, right? So that might be people who stay during a winter time with family or friends. Maybe they are working in um, outdoor recreational work or campground services or, you know, all these sorts of seasonal work that we know about or working in various um, um harvest, whatever that might be. And then we have people who, who aren't staying more than three months, right? They're actually, it's less than three months that they're staying in, in more than in a hundred mile area. And they are your, really your true sort of digital nomads, right? And they're, but some of them aren't working at all, right? Some are working, some are retired, some are on social security. So this is where I think that it's, it, rather than trying to separate based upon uh, the resources a person has or their type of job or their income level, it's better to sort of think about it in terms of where people live in that sense of like how long they live in a particular area, because that actually is sort of what I was getting at before is sort of really the differences in the conditions, because the person who's geographically tethered tends to experience this discrimination within the cities, because that tends to be where they're geographically tethered to. And when they get out and they become untethered or semi-tethered, they see that a lot of that discrimination sort of goes away when they're in these open areas with other people living in vehicles who are able to say, hey, I respect your vehicle and I love your home, right? And so that's where I think that there's actually a tremendous amount of overlap among vehicle residents, I, I approach vehicle residency from a big tent perspective, right? We have a very big tent of people living in vehicles. And really, it's just the differences is where they're living in vehicles and for how long. Yeah. So we're coming up to an hour now. And I have one overarching question. I think that answer kind of ties into this. As an anthropologist, as somebody that's studying this, what does this tell you about human nature as a whole? Because you have the California property owners that don't give a shit about some like that, that RV is ugly. I want it out here. I don't care about their situation, which has its own thing. You know, that's, that's part of human nature. Then you have people that played the game their entire life and a company gets sold to Mexico and some, some, somebody makes 1.2 billion and then they're out of a job and then they have to go into their rv so you have this whole spectrum you have this 
this big tent of humanity, if we're expanding out of this smaller tent within the big tent of humanity, but you've also seen the good. You see the people putting forth the effort and the alliances and the money and people trying to help. So what has all of this taught you? What is the 30,000 view from all the bullshit to the good, to the heartaches, to people having $150,000 a year living in a van with property and doing the American dream that way. Like you're, you're literally just seeing this, this whirlpool of humanity. What, what has it taught you any, any uh, points that have been taken from that? Yeah. Um, So I I would say that the, the, the big, the biggest takeaway from this, from sort of an anthropological on, you know, in that sense, a human, you know, humanist perspective, what is it, you know, what does this tell us about humanity? Is that, and, and this is not new information. This is just sort of something that I think we already know, but we may not think about too much, right? Is that people have been living in vehicles far longer than people have been living in cities. That the concept of nomadism, the idea that people live in this sort of re- relationship within their environment of moving around when the environment pushes them to move, is something that that has allowed people um the power, the empowered people to live in every place on this planet, on every continent, move into space, into the deepest oceans. Our ability to adapt our homes to our environmental conditions is what allows humans to thrive and succeed. It is what really is what has pushed us to be uh, sort of, you know, uh, this very expansive species that, that that has populated so much of, the, of our world and expanding out even beyond. The reality is, is that while nomadism has been around, uh, you know, for kind of since the dawn of humanity, the concept of the nomad is an invention of cities, that, that it is city people just defining what it means to not live in a city. That the reality is that people have used adaptive housing as a way to work together and, and respond to their environment successfully uh, for you know hundreds of thousands of years. And really, it's only been about the last 10,000 years, plus or minus, that we have been in these walled cities. And then we call the people who live outside those walled cities the nomad. And that's where that 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 discrimination, I think, is that's really where it kind of gets rooted in, is this idea that the people who are doing it right are living in that normal version of housing, the sticks and bricks, the four walls, a roof and a, and a, and a foundation. And it creates this idea that people who are living outside the cities who are living in vehicles or whatever other form of public spaces are seen as doing it wrong. And, and I think that fundamentally seeing that, realizing that is what allows us to, to push back against it, to say, well, that's just not true. Right. I mean, the reality is, is that people have, have lived in these ways in, in in vehicles and in adaptive housing in successful ways far longer than we've been living in cities. There's so much we can get from this. And as we see mass displacement occurring in our in our society and as we see environmental challenges, climate change, flooding, fires, let alone gentrification, evictions, all of these things that are occurring that we all experience, we're all seeing around us, that the people who are using their vehicles as a response to that, to that environmental displacement are continuing this ancient human tradition of adaptive homemaking, that rather than seeing nomadism, vehicle residency, uh, that 
rather than the policymakers seeing this as an aberration, as something that's wrong or bad or backwards, the band down by the river, we need to shift to see uh, what I think so many that you know and so many of your listeners know is the value of that vehicle home, that there is a private property value, that there's a stability, that there's uh, all these resources and this ability to move around the world and access new resources, that that this is a, a, a very empowering form of housing. And that we need to deconstruct that settlement bias that says that this form of housing cannot be empowering because it is and it always has been and and it's it really is about providing the infrastructure and the support so that housing is empowering and not discriminating it so that it is stigmatized that's really what i've learned and i think that that's that's sort of where it's led my work to go to really build on to show and um spread the knowledge of people like yourself of people like of, of your listeners of people who attend these gatherings to the policymakers to show look we need, we're backwards on this the cities are backwards the people who are running the cities are backwards they need to see this in a different way and we need to create spaces for people living in their vehicles or else they have no options but to live in public parking <laughs> right and that's and ultimately if the, if the city policymaker has a problem with the person in public parking they need to create a space for that person to park in their city i agree all right, Graham. I appreciate your time. I'm sure we'll have a follow-up sooner or later. Um, in the meantime, if any any of the listeners, um, both video and podcast, your links will be down below. Um, but just if you want to mention how people can get a hold of you, if they have any questions, if they want to check out your work, how can they reach out to you? Yes, yes. Uh, please email me at Graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, like the Graham Cracker, at vehicleresidency.org. Uh, you can also visit that website, vehicleresidency.org, uh, to learn more about the National Vehicle Residency Collective. Uh, you can learn about the summit that we had in November. Uh, we have all of our uh, sessions posted on YouTube, and there's a link there. So you can actually watch the summit sessions that we had uh, with people from Home on Wheels Alliance, researchers, policymakers, uh, parking program operators talking about their systems. Uh, and uh, and also you can sign up to be a part of the National Vehicle Residency Collective. And uh which uh, again is uh, centers the experiences of people who live in vehicles to drive these conversations. So uh, I hope that you can uh, join our work and uh, we would love to work with you. Uh, specifically. Awesome. Thanks for your time today, bub. Wonderful. Thank you so much.